Hello, and welcome to Imagine Me and Utena, a revolutionary girl Utena podcast. I'm Panda, I'm your host, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host Alice. How you doing, Alice? I'm doing pretty great, actually. I say, as always, as if the most recent episode that I put out had you on it, which it didn't. It was just me and Yasha and Vana. But as most times, I am here with Alice, and we have a guest today, a returning guest from... Well, like two, it's been two years since you were on the show, I think. Hi, Ari. Hi, how's it going? I'm doing pretty <laughs> great. How are you guys? Doing all right. You know, uh, spring is starting up here in Glasgow town. And uh, I am now the proud owner of Utena Blu-ray. Yes, I was going to ask you about any Utena related updates since the last time you were on the show. How are you liking the, the Blu-ray? Um, you know, the... The Blu-rays themselves are are fantastic. I have the, the UK edition that just came out, and I think it's already completely sold out in all of its configurations. That's what I heard. Um, the box set is really nice. Uh, artwork is pretty great. It came with like three posters and I think 12, 16, 12 or 16 postcards oh. that are printed in really nice stock. They're all of them, you know, the cover art for the old VHSs and DVDs like that have like yeah. couples and stuff. And uh, they even did a nice thing. Each of the each of the three Blu-rays has like its own cardboard sleeve. That on the one side it has you know one of those illustrations, and on the other one, uh, like it has like yeah, basically you get six illustrations in total. Uh, you're out of luck if you wanted anything that wasn't the student council, <laughs> <laughs> um, because there's no. It's kind of a bit of a shame because the Black Rose Saga one is like. Mickey and Kosuo on one side and Jury and Shuri on the other and it doesn't have like any of the Black Rose duelists but you do get those in the postcards the postcards are beautiful the posters are great uh, each of the Blu-rays in their own plastic case it comes with like a reversible sleeve and yeah overall I'm very pleased with it I've been watching it with a friend I'm, I'm kind of up to like episode 8 or 9 or something and uh, yeah just the quality of the product itself is really good really impressed with the way that they did the subtitles I think it's I think all of this is exactly the same as the the US release probably basically they used they used a slightly different font size and color for songs yeah okay. yeah and it's intensely it's really really good because one of the issues of Utina in uh, a lot of the fan subs that you can obtain through <clears throat> methods is that they're based on old DVDs and DVDs had like more limited uh, subtitling capacity than Blu-rays do. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that you tended to have a few suboptimal choices, right? You could could only have like just the subtitles for the dialogue and maybe the signs or whatever. Or maybe you did have the songs, but they were on the top of the screen and then you had a lot of text both at the top and the bottom and it was a lot to read. And they've for the blu-ray what they've done is um i'm pretty sure like i think most of the subtitles for dialogue are in yellow which by the way as a professional creator of subtitles is my favorite way of displaying them because it contrasts with a lot of things and the way that they show the for example the dual courses is they show they show them in a smaller white font right above the subtitle so you don't have to be going up and down in the screen all the time yeah. yeah yeah and it's just much more it's much easier to both read the dialogue and keep up with the songs and it's great it works really amazingly and yeah it's much more enjoyable the, the tra- new translation that's 
the main reason why I got it is that new translation. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Because yeah. I know that a lot of people from the Empty Movement forum and community were involved in giving feedback on some of the subtitles and whatnot. I think the last time that we talked may have been around the time that the US Blu-ray set went, came out. I think it came out, I think it might have, it might have been very recently out. Because I think it yeah. was out, yeah, 2017 or 2018. Um, yeah. But they had, already an- they had already announced the UK one. They announced the UK mm-hmm. one in late 2017. But uh, yeah, and then nothing happened for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, the way things can go sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not super pleased with the release. I think like it's well known in the fandom that I, I'm a bit reticent to talk too much about this because I am involved in uh, film festivals in Scotland and the biggest anime film festival in Scotland. I've never worked for them, but I, you know, they might want to hire me at some point. And uh, they're also, they're run by the same person that runs the distributor and publisher. And I'm like, I I don't know if I want to be as harsh as I originally planned, but I will say (laughs) that I don't think it's a good idea to wait for three years while you're having a, a license and then basically announce it with like a week's notice in the middle of a pandemic and then yeah. remind people again with 24 hours notice. And yeah. And also, uh, and this meant that a lot of people were disappointed. A lot of people didn't even get the box set at all. And a lot yeah. of people uh, like myself, we logged into the website the moment that the pre-orders went up and they did not, um, they had very few quantities of the very, very limited edition that came with the rings and a special art book because that was leftovers from the U uh, S release. And yeah, I literally had it in my cart. It took me a minute to go get my my credit card. And um, in, in, in those 30 seconds, I tried to hit buy and it just wouldn't go through because it didn't reserve it if it was in your cart. And uh, I've had that yeah. experience buying things online. It is the most frustrating thing to be able to like have it in your cart, be ready to go. And then it's like, oh, I have to sign into PayPal. This is going to take a second. And then by the time you're sent back to the original site, like it's already sold out. Yep. It's like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. What's the point of putting this in my cart if it doesn't reserve it for me? And you know, yeah, I think that in terms of announcing it and promoting it, I do think that all the anime maybe should have done a bit more work. Like Absolutely. many of I, there's, I, there's no excuse for giving that little like heads up for people like especially with the the way that the US release was received it was received very positively there was a lot of fanfare to go and give people like no notice for the UK release is just unacceptable like i love you anime publishers i nozomi etc but like come on dude I, I think yeah i kind of wonder like you know cuz cuz the thing is uh, i i made it made it up made a point to like every 2 or 3 months to send a tweet to that distributor and ask them. And it was something that people did regularly and they were saying, mm-hmm. we don't have anything to announce for a very long time. And from from my experience of like looking through their Twitter, most of their, like of the tweets that people made at that publisher that were about stuff that hadn't been properly announced with a release date, uh, pretty much people were just talking about Utena. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I understand, you know, there's a pandemic. I think probably all the anime, probably there were good reasons why this happened because yeah it was also like earlier in the pandemic as well when when things were a bit more up in the air uh, here in the UK and i do understand that yeah i think it's it's part yeah that bad timing and i think they should have probably planned it a bit better but i also reserve a particular little corner of of my heart full of hatred 
for <laughs> the uh, US-based fans that bought it. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Like, come on, guys. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, we will never know the numbers, obviously, because it's private uh, information. Yeah. But, you know, we do know that there are at least a sizable, there were a sizable number of fans in the US that did get it. Like, we know this from, like, people commenting it, uh, mm-hmm. commenting that they got it on Twitter. And, you know, a lot of us in the UK were extremely miffed at this. I can imagine. Because the US edition has been available with the rings for a long time. And I was, for a while there, I was considering just buying that because there were so, because there weren't any news and we were like, oh, maybe this license will just like, just die off, right? Maybe they'll just mm-hmm. lose the license eventually. You know, at the end of the day, I'm very, very happy that I have this, that I have this now. It's uh, like, you know, the box art is really beautiful and the, the Blu-rays themselves are great, but that's mainly Nosomi. Um, but it's it's a very good feeling to, to watch this anime that's been in my life since the 90s with a friend that I'm introducing it to. And as the credits roll up and there's a thank you to Empty Movement, uh, like I'm like, I'm in the credits, sort of. Not really. It's just the community I've been part of for you're a long there. time. <laughs> you're in the community. You're there. But it's, it's kind of wild to be able to say that, that in, in an official Utena release, I am yeah. sort of kind of obliquely part of the credits. <laughs> Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, is your friend that you're watching it with watching it for the first time? How is that going? Yeah, uh, really good. My, it's, it's a friend of mine. Uh, shout out to my friend Gray. Uh, he's, he's really lovely. He literally lives just down the road. And uh, yeah, it's the first time that, uh, that he's seen Utena. He has seen a lot of anime, but not a lot of like classic shoujo and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. definitely loves that gay content. And uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It looks the the transfer DVD the, the DVD. I keep seeing DVD because I barely have any Blu-rays because I don't really have to be done with yet. <laughs> uh, the Blu-ray the, the quality is really good, and also it actually looks better on Grace TV because Grace TV has uh, motion smoothing, and Utena being an old anime has a lot of panning shots because it, they're cheap to animate. Um, and panning shots look really good in motion smoothing. It it, it looks really <laughs> sixty FPS, you know, and you're like, wow. So yeah, no, very yeah. He's really sold on it already and uh yeah no it's it's good it's 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 really really positive experience yeah i love i love when you introduce somebody to utsuna and they just immediately latch on yeah it's a it's it's like a a quick shot of dopamine for the brain basically yeah i love i love the reaction the typical reaction i think of people that get on board is usually like i don't have a clue what's actually going on but i am 100 percent on board (laughs) yeah definitely that's how I was when I first started. Yeah, same. Same. So, uh, listeners, normally we ask our guests uh, what their history is with Utsuna and their favorite character, but uh, we've already done that because Ari's been on the show before, but I do have to just check in. Is your favorite character the same as last time? I don't remember who you said because I don't listen to old episodes once I put them up. <laughs> That's legit. Um, I am also terrified of my old work. <laughs> I don't watch movies that have subtitled uh, years after I've subtitled them because they give me they give me the cringies. But um, uh, no, my my favorite character is still Jury. But I, in the last couple of years, between rewatching the show and the musicals, Nanami is now a very close second. All hail the queen! Um, baby. All hail like... the queen! And actually, she she comes up in my notes in the notes that I put for this episode. I saw. Yes, I would I, I would love to do a whole episode about World Revolutionary Nanami. Yeah. 
But um, what we are here today to talk about is a subject that Ari, this was your idea, and Alice and I were both very excited about it. So why don't you tell the listeners what it is we're here to talk about? Okay, so um, just as a, as a sort of brief introduction, uh, I want to talk a bit about I want to kind of use Utena as a vehicle to discuss a larger issue, I think, in Nerdom, which is canonicity in storytelling and the concerns regarding uh, concepts of canon in mainly uh, in my experiences of, you know, English-speaking fandoms and kind of English, the English-speaking nerd sphere as a whole. And I, I think Utena makes for a really, really interesting example of uh, an approach that I've seen in a lot of Japanese media uh, to canon. And uh, also touching on issues of a storytelling's internal, a story's internal consistency, and the intended purpose of art and metaphor and symbolism in a story. And I want to just start off by crediting this idea to my obsession with H Bomber guys videos. <laughs> I actually I was watching the video that inspired all this. I I rewatched some of it earlier today. I didn't get to I didn't have enough time to watch the whole thing, but uh I love me an H bomb. Yeah. And to 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 just very briefly uh mention um just just what that is about. It's uh Hate Warner guy's video about Dark Souls 2. I think it's called um In Defense of Dark Souls 2. Yeah. And is. you know, he talks about a lot of different aspects of the game, but uh at a certain point Maybe maybe I did have the... It's the, about an hour in, code. like 50 minutes-ish, yeah. like to uh, yeah. just pass, and maybe like an hour 10. Yeah, from, from minute 50, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, and basically, uh, in that part, he talks a bit about the story. And now I want to I want to preface this by saying, um, anybody, any listeners, or, any, or if either of you have... I don't have any experience with Dark Souls games. I don't enjoy those games. I am a noob. I, I will never get good. My wife really likes the, the Soulsborne series, but hmm. I just, I, I also can never get good. I just, yeah, it's, that's a separate, that's a separate thing. But, uh, but the thing with it is that Dark Souls 2 is a very divisive game. And one of the reasons why it is, why that is, is because of its uh, storytelling. And instead of tearing, telling a, a much more kind of concrete story, at least it's the way that Hate Wrong Guy presents it. It's a story that's much more couched on ambiguity and metaphor and symbolism and referencing things outside of the framework of th th that maybe a Western nerd might have. So referencing, it references an Akira Kurosawa movie, you know, and stuff like that. And so H. guy says that phrase, uh, do we curse in this podcast? Is that a thing we do? Oh, yes. We, okay, cool. We can, I forget. we can curse. The only thing we don't say is slurs. Oh, okay. No, obviously. Yeah. Oh. Well, yeah, oh, I, I, was just, no. <laughs> I was just being silly. I, did, I didn't mean to imply that you made it on this show. But no, H. says um, the story of Dark Souls has the most terrifying thing to a nerd, a story that you can't put on a fucking wiki. <laughs> God, I felt that in my soul when, it, when, it, when I first watched that video. Oh, uh, that's really, that, that really is Utena. Right? It is. Like, there are Utena wiki pages, but... Uh... And this is not to necessarily disparage them. No, of course not. Like, they, I mean, I feel like the people who make those would probably agree with us that putting Utena into a wiki is difficult as hell. And also, I feel like, unlike a lot of things, like, if you just read all of the wiki pages, that still would not really give you 
like a, an understanding of what Utena actually is. I think that only you know Utena by being by virtue of the way that it is it is made is something that is definitely served better by something like empty movement, right? That is just like this massive archive. Yeah. Right. But I wanted to one of the things that I have in my, one of my first points here is I wanted to clarify the the ideas that I want to explore are not canon is bad and sabotages all artistry, which is inherently good, um, but rather kind of looking at certain tendencies in the way that people understand stories and certain problems with that, which happen to be due to the obsession with canonicity. But canonicity and checking canon and canon consistency aren't inherently bad. I'm not, I'm not saying thing bad. I'm just saying thing exists, to quote Lindsay Ellis. <laughs> How exactly did we get to a place of nerddom where there is so much focus on canon? Um, I mean, the, the short version of it is a combination of just the specific things that developed into Western fandom and um, I try not to say Western, but um, into the English speaking, into English speaking nerddom. And, you know, obviously that as, as we all know, it comes from the, the terms for canon and canonicity come from uh, a Bible scholarship and about what, you know, which parts of scripture were considered important in, in Christianity but it really kind of like came to the forefront with with the birth of nerddom through fandoms such as obviously Star Trek, right? Star Trek is like the big one. Star Trek is definitely the thing that I thought of when you suggested this topic because we we've kind of like talked around and a little bit about the idea of like in Star Trek fandom specifically curative fandom versus transformative fandom because that's something that uh, Yasha and Vana also have a lot of experience with in the Star Trek fandom. Oh, And that feels like that kind of goes hand in hand with uh, with this. Star Trek isn't the only one, but definitely it's... It's like the Ur example, basically. Yeah. It is probably the best early example. Like, um, Star Wars eventually got there in the 80s. Um, yeah. Like late 80s, early 90s. Warhammer definitely got there by about 90 uh various games like the games workshop overall basically anything that is like uh in a a men dominated fandom let's bring out the misandry early here well i mean yes yes and no because i would say the early the early star trek fandom was very much dominated by women and throughout it's had yeah and, and, and that kind of thing always shows up and really I, I that kind of thing really starts happening in the 80s like yeah, really, yeah. I, really I, I, when I mean when I mention men, I mean more like the the focus on like this is canonical to the world is very much something that men seem to be focused more on in fandom as opposed to like early Star Trek fandom. Like as far as women was a lot of like writing fan fiction mm -hmm. and stuff like that, which is uh, more on the transformative side. You're right, and. You know, I guess the other the other relatively male dominated, well, quite male dominated fandom that that this is in is uh, superhero comics. Obviously, right? That's like the yeah. other yeah. big one, which is hilarious because have you ever seen anything more canon unstable than an English language superhero comic? Right. Like every now and again, I check in on like a comic or some characters and essential basic truths about who they are have completely changed in, I don't know, the 20 <laughs> years since I last checked in on, I don't know, a Wonder Girl or whatever, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. cool. 
I mean, we say it's ironic, but now that I think about it, it makes it actually make a lot of sense. If that's if you're if if you're kind of like coming out of this environment of like you have to actually be paying attention to know what on earth is going on here. Yeah, mate. I mean, that makes sense that you start to approach everything that way of rigorous documentation just to keep track. Yeah, and it's um, there was a, there was an article that that uh, did the rounds about this recently, and obviously a lot of the current writing about this is for obvious reasons about Marvel and Star Wars, right? Yeah. But there was a there was an article called "Our Fascination with Canon Is Killing the Way We Value Stories," and in essence, what the article is talking about is how being so obsessed with the minutiae of quote unquote what really happened can take the focus away from what a story is trying to say, what a story is trying to do, what it's trying to do with its characters and what it's trying to do with its world because it becomes much more about, well, this thing doesn't match that thing. And that is my primary concern rather than is this an interesting and engaging story or is it saying interesting and engaging things? It kind of reminds me of when I get on YouTube and I see videos that are like, insert movie ending explained. And a lot of times I look at it and I'm like, I don't feel like that movie ending really needs to be like broken down to its bare essentials so that you can understand it. I feel like you just sort of need to watch it and think about how you feel. Yeah. And it's, I feel like, I feel like there's definitely a place for both your own interpretation as well as, you know, internal consistency, you know, like when I was watching, um, I'm a mark for Star Wars uh, as a, as a child of the eighties. And uh, I was, I watched the Mandalorian and I loved it. And I was watching it with, uh, with a friend who also loves Star Wars, but is maybe not as clued into a lot of the minutiae. And the brilliant thing about that show is that, yeah, you know, it does bring back a lot of canon. There's a lot of canon to explain if you want to do that. And there's some things that the show has not fully explained yet, but the show works anyway. And the show kind of treats the things that it hasn't explained yet as mysteries. And even even if I know, oh, this is what that item is. Oh, this is what this thing is referencing. I still don't really know where the show is going to go because the show is totally blazing a new path in terms of what it's doing with Mandalorians, for example, even though I know a lot about Mandalorians, you know, in the current canon, I'm still the show. I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I kind of love that because I don't, I don't feel like it needs to be necessarily welded to that, you know? Yeah. It is okay to know the specs of the, of of an Incom X-Wing, but like, that's not where the story is. And when the when you when you get that level of minutiae confused for story, you're going not I mean not only are you going to have a myopic view of that story, but what it actually has to say, the actual merit and the value you are going to get there, you're just not going to get it. Like so many times I've seen people like get really, really, really caught up in small things that they miss the obvious like sort of what was intended here as artistically like um missing the forest for the trees yeah like i, I think about 40k uh warhammer 40k where you have um the novels which have always been pretty great at depicting sort of like 40k's fundamental one of their fundamental ideas which is this sort of like simultaneous cautionary tale and set satirical kind of look at a um the fascist mindset and how like 
forces that exist in our world are can be pulled towards a kind of fascism by way of stupidity, if you will. And people will completely not get that a hundred percent because they are so caught up in timelines. They will just absolutely not catch it. They won't, they will completely miss the obvious satire of like, they will be able to tell you everything about how a Imperial commissar is raised, how they're raised, how they're trained, how they're assigned, what their battlefield role is. They, if you ask them, what is the point of having a commissar artistically speaking, why did they put this in here? They have nothing for you. They is they've not really thought about why what this what this character being here was supposed to mean, and it it's kind of bewildering. That is so unfortunate because you know I'm not I'm um I'm I'm very much a, a casual when it comes to to any Warhammer's uh, 40k is the only one that I know anything about. But you know my experience with 40k is I find it a really fun thing to engage with because it's so balls to the wall and it's saying so many things at the same time. And it's doing so many things at the same time and kind of not seeing that just because you're so focused on the, the minutiae of a world that is intentionally ridiculous. Yeah, that, that's really what gets me is that it's intentionally ridiculous. Like to to touch, to bring it back to Utena mildly, like there's so much stuff in Utena which is intentionally kind of either vague or absurd. And that vagueness or absurdity is part of the artistic intent. and it's easy for people, including occasionally us, but we've done it mostly for fun, to get really caught up on on, on that absurdity or on that or explaining away that vagueness and completely ignore what the actual point of the ser- of that show was of that episode. Like I've joked, I've kind of talked before about my time loops thing, and my time loops thing is fun. Time loops theory is real. Like. <laughs> I've talked about it a bunch, but I'm also aware as I talk about that, that the time loops thing is only something I'm willing to talk about in so much as it does not distract me from talking about what the show is doing artistically, because I'm not interested in upgrading headcanon and upgrading um, canonical speculation to the same level as artistic analysis. Those are two very different things. They're they're both fine, but they're not the same thing. No, I wanted to um before before diving fully into it tonight, I wanted to give two 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 small examples because I wanted to kind of like make sure that it is understood that when I'm saying this, I'm not wagging my finger, and I kind of want to point at times when I fell in this, when I fell into this pattern. One of them was with the Marvel movies. I nowadays I don't really care much about the Marvel movies. I was initially very skeptical because my Marvel, you know, the, the the bit of the Marvel universe that I ever cared about was X Men and Spider Man, and that's kind of it. Oh, I feel that. Yeah, and uh, so I've seen most of the X Men movies, even though most of them are terrible. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, you know, I got into into the Avengers movies. I've never I never watched every single one of them, um, but I was watching the Iron Man ones, and I remember, you know. There was a big hubbub when Iron Man 3 came out because they made a very... Uh, there were, One thing in which I think, I think I was on the right side of the discussion is, you know, they changed the character of the Mandarin who in the comics was very much a leftover from the time of having very racist caricatures of Chinese people as Yellow Peril characters. A, a, yeah. a ridiculous holdover from 
fucking um, Buck Rogers levels of racism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And the way that they redid him was basically they updated him to make him appear to be uh, what seemed to be a terrorist from a Middle Eastern country. And in what looks like a very, uh, like an updated kind of racism, <laughs> like that is more relevant to the actual current hangups and fears of American culture. But then the movie turns that around and tells you that that guy is just an actor and the real Mandarin is a white guy. And it's spoilers for a movie that came out like six years the ago. The enemy was the white man all along. Yeah. And, and I like that. That bit of the movie I felt was great because it was, it was saying, we can't do the Mandarin the way he was in the comics, guys. It's not okay. And I thought yeah. that was brilliant when I, when I watched the movie. And at the end of that movie, for a lot of personal reasons, for the character arc that he's had in, the, in all of the movies so far, Tony Stark destroys all of the Iron Man armors and decides to stop being Iron Man. And you get like a message that says, Tony Stark will return in Age of Ultron, right? And yeah. then fast forward to when Age of Ultron came out, I went to see it with some friends in the cinema. And literally the, the, the first thing that happens, the first scene, the first thing you see is uh, the Avengers are like all engaged in like a big action sequence attacking Hydra, including Tony flying in Iron Man suit, uh, surrounded by all of the like flying uh, remote controlled Iron Man suits. You know, the ones that he destroyed at, la- at the end of the previous movie, which does happen chronologically before this. Mm-hmm. And I think there's maybe one or two lines where he in passing mentions that, you know, he just needed to take some time off or something like that. But basically the ending of Iron Man 3, which is a, a really fitting kind of, it's kind of good, like coda. It's a good ending. Yeah, it's 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 a coda to his arc. And then the next movie, because Iron Man has to be flying around in the action scenes, they just discard it. They just they didn't commit to to that. And you know, and I was that's you know, I checked out. I do admit that I fell asleep during Age of Ultron because I think I just I was like, this universe has asked me to care about it, and like, I've been asked to watch all of these movies to understand what's going on. But then the movies themselves don't care about something. And it's not something small. We're not talking about a small detail. We're talking about like the character development of the main character of the franchise. And you're just tossing that because you still, you're afraid that people will not buy enough Iron Man figures, you know? <laughs> so that was like yeah. one side of it um, where I was like, okay, this entire thing is built on canonicity, but then discards it at the drop of a hat. And I don't really know how I should engage with it. And that's the only way in which I continue to engage with it is sporadically. <laughs> um, and the other one that is a bit smaller of a story, it was, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Uh, I have a Star Trek podcast, uh, which we haven't made a new episode in two years, but we're trying. Angel to a feminist Star Trek podcast. Um, and uh, one of the things that I had, I had a lot of trouble with the first season of Star Trek Discovery. I didn't like it. I think in retrospect, it wasn't that amazing. But one of the things that I kept being really annoyed about were the breaks from canon. Because I've known a lot of Trek canon inside out since I was young. And it just it just kept annoying me. I was like, they shouldn't have an holographic com- a holographic communicator. And they shouldn't have this and blah. And it looks like the movie like the reboots. And if they wanted to do that, they should have made it happen in the reboot universe. And this, that, and the other. And you know, I finished watching it. I didn't enjoy it. And then season two came along and a lot of people were saying that it was better and I almost didn't watch it. And season two was incredible. Just incredible. It still kept completely blatantly violating canon and I didn't care because I, I realized that I needed to relax about it to enjoy the show for what it was doing. And I was rewarded because season two was really much better and more consistently written than season one. Um, not the best show ever, but it's, it's great. I'm eagerly awaiting season three. But 
my obsession with Star Trek canon stopped me from seeing what the show was trying to do and understanding what it was trying to achieve, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely had, uh, I've had experiences like that. Uh, usually it tends to be when I've like read a book and then they've made like a movie or TV show. And I've, I've gotten a lot better about it over the years, but I used to get really grumpy when it would be like, I thought this was better in the book or why did they change this? They didn't need to change this. But in my uh, in my growing age, I have uh, been like, what, like, why, why do I need to, why do I need to fuss about this so much? And that's the thing, you know. Like, I recently played the Final Fantasy VII remake. Uh, as, as, the, as listeners can probably tell by now, I wear a lot of fandom hats. You've been streaming Final Fantasy, haven't you? I've been streaming uh, the original Final Fantasy VII with a bunch of mods, which is really fun. Because I played the remake uh, all the way through, and then I was like, I really want to play the original. The remake only covers a part of the story, but the remake really, you know, it expands on on the the part of the story that it covers so much. It like it basically inflates it tenfold, develops the characters more, and gives everything a modern cinematic triple A sheen. But it also blatantly rips up canon. And yes, it does. Yeah, uh, that's a different conversation. Final Fantasy VII is not just art. Final Fantasy VII is a religious document. <laughs> it's it's one of the most imperfect games in the entire series it's so full of flaws and people want to like stick to it you know it's 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 really wild to me but i guess like yeah just to bring it back uh bring it back a bit i think i've just been very interested in you know yeah you know canonicity respecting canon putting things in a wiki that can be fun that can be okay you know if the rise of skywalker had been a good movie aside from the fact that it destroyed canon but if he had, it was at least coherent in terms of characterization and writing, then I wouldn't hate it as much as I do. But now, because it's it's such a trash fire, I feel perfectly confident also saying like, well, canonically, this also wouldn't happen, you know? Because mm-hmm. who cares? But one of the things that I find interesting is I feel there's a specific approach to the, the concept of canonicity that I've seen in a lot of Japanese productions. Right. And it derives from the fact that I was told many years ago by um, a guy called Mark Simmons. Well, I was told he posted it in a message board that I was responding to. I don't love this because that's the name of one of my ex-boyfriends. It's, oh. a, very com- it's a common name. So I have yeah. no, I have very little faith that this is the same one. <laughs> this guy, this guy is most famous for being, he's an illustrator and he uh, is frequently a consultant for uh, Bandai and Sunrise on Gundam releases. Glad someone's doing good to that name. Yeah, he's um he's he knows a lot of Gundam stuff inside out. You know, he like he can he speaks Japanese, so he can like he's like read a lot of the books. Oh and, yeah. Um. Anyway, and I think he's taken a big step back from that in in the last decade or so. But um, but one of the things that he mentioned is that um the word canon as we understand it doesn't quite exist in. Especially, at least not in discussions in Japanese nerd circles. And apparently at some point, they were asked, maybe by a Western fan, uh, Sunrise, the makers of Gundam, were asked about canonicity because Gundam has a lot of, like, you know, OVAs and other things that go into different parts of the traditional universal century timeline. But it also has a lot of other universes. And basically what Sunrise said was that the way they see it is uh, they see things as being official or not. But they don't quite mean it in the sense that we mean it, because anything that's licensed with the Gundam name, we would call it official in some capacity. 
um, even if it's an AU or something. But what they mean is they mean that the, the stories that count are the animated ones. And comics and novels and video games, they're licensed, they're legitimate, but they're not considered, quote unquote, official, right? Mm-hmm. And and that kind of set me down a path where I started looking at a lot of other Japanese franchises and realizing that they had a very, very lax approach to canonicity. Macros is constantly contradicting itself because Shoji Kawamori has said it very blatantly that he's much more interested in being free to tell whatever story he, he fancies telling rather than whether something matches up to a previous show. Oh, yeah. I thought um, it was just because the Macross was insane. I mean, there's that also. <laughs> but, hey, um, guys, listen to this. What if, just, just stay with me here, what if we defeated the, the giant monster people with 80s Japanese pop? We did this a bunch of times. Oh, and that, that that's that's also like, that's not even as crazy as it gets. That's where it starts. Oh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, I know. That's, like, that's like step zero. Like, what if our machines were powered? What if everything was powered by specifically pop music of Japan's 80s period? Yeah. God, yeah. I will talk about that one day. Macross is great. Yeah. And uh, I really noticed that when I started really getting in the last two or three years, when I started getting really into Kamen Rider, you know, because I've been watching Tokusatsu since I was a little kid, but uh, I started watching a lot of it. And one of the things that Toei, Toei Productions does is they do a lot of crossover movies, right? With Kamen Rider, Super Sentai, Metal Hero, a lot of older properties. And one of the things that I had seen people say online were, were people were saying stuff like, oh, the crossovers are their own universe or this, that, and the other. Um, and, you know, also Kamen Rider shows also crossover in the TV shows themselves. And I started realizing that basically uh, most of those crossovers made no sense with each other because major things that the characters had seen in one crossover don't carry over to the next. And basically the approach that they have in those stories is anything is canon until it isn't. And anything (laughs) is canon in the context of the the story we're telling right now. And that's kind of it, you know? It, It also kind of reminds me of like when you have things like the Dragon Ball Z movies or like the, the Sailor Moon movies where they seem to exist uh, in a like a liminal space outside of what happens in like the regular TV show. Yeah, and completely. Try, pe- people trying to like fit these into how like the series works, and it's like just just don't even worry about it, dude. Like it doesn't have to all fit together. I mean, there's something to be said for the idea that like sometimes you can get in this awkward position where there's an uncertainty about like basic facts of like. Sure. Does the person know something, and that's 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 a legitimate criticism. But there's a there is a difference, and 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 it, it helps to acknowledge that there's a difference between basic understanding of what is factually happening on front of you, so you know what's going on, and a well, actually, if you would if if you really were paying attention in the 1987 release of like <laughs> th- these are not the same. They kind they can be a thing that the same person does but they're not coming from the same place and they do not necessarily have the same goals yeah yeah and i i have a i have a really good example of this so i recently watched Kamen Rider x8 it's a great show the main characters are both doctors and gamers um hell yeah it's it's it's, it's pretty great but it crossed over with face sentai q ranger and the way that people 
identify where a crossover movie happens is based on what episodes were happening around at the same time as the movie came out, and also based on what power-ups appear in the movie that the characters already have, you know? And that's kind of how people kind of put it together. So I watched up to a certain episode of X-8 and watched like the first like seven episodes of Q-Ranger to to kind of know who the characters were. And I watched their big crossover, which was really fun. They meet for the first time, the Kamen Rider X-8 cast with the Q-Ranger cast. And and, and it's, it's a really, it's a fun movie. It's a big crossover. Following that, uh, probably as cross promotion from the movie for the movie, there was an episode of Exade that featured Q Ranger characters and an episode of Q Ranger that featured Kamen Rider Exade. And so I watched all those episodes in order, and and I watched the movie episode of um, of I think Q Ranger and episode of Exade, right? And then the Exade TV show continued. In each of these three stories, the characters meet for the first time, <laughs> like. For real, for real. They meet for the first time in each of the stories. They're like, oh, I am such and such. Oh, I'm Kamen Rider Rex It's really nice to meet you. Cool. See you next time. And then the, the, yeah. And then the next crossover. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. You know, because they don't, because it doesn't matter. <laughs> because they can't necessarily, the the viewers of the shows have not necessarily seen the other crossovers. Yeah. It, it's a logistical concern. And like, it's kind of just okay. Like, a lot of stories, are, it's just okay to see them as being, you know, like, not connected 100% at every point. It's okay. Yeah, and that's, you know, there there have been other similar crossovers between these two franchises, between Kamen Rider and Super Sentai, that have been much more, much more closely, like, you know, Kamen Rider Decade crossed over with Shinkenger, like, in 2009, and it was much more of a coherent story. Um but yeah, in this case, both of those crossovers didn't mean much for either Q-Ranger or X-Aid, and they're just there as cross-promotion. But um, that's why I kind of wanted to like, to like talk about this, because like, you know, I, see, I see such an obsession, such a fixation in a lot of nerddom about like, you know, just, just like, you know, filing everything, you know, yeah. and having that, in, that uh, very instrumental approach to a story, you know, rather than the artistry. Um, and I think we should probably bring it to Utena now. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that you have written in your notes is uh, Utena is in many ways the anti-canon. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell us a little more about that? So one of the things that um, I think is very appealing to, to a lot of us when we start watching Utena is, is that it's, it's extremely weird, right? And oh, yeah. Even when you compare it to some weirder anime from the 90s, it's even weirder than that. It's weirder than normal. And it's not, you know, it's not the kind of weird that is like, haha, random that you get in other anime. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very focused kind of weird that is going for specific aesthetic uh, references and a specific set of kind of like a specific visual language. Um, like, I think, yeah, I summed it up as saying that it's a universe that operates on, on dream logic. Yeah, It's nothing else. Um, and of course, we 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 because we have seen the sh- the show all the way through and all of its different permutations, we do know that the world of Otori is an invented world, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 a it's it's the perpetual motion machine of Akio and Anthe. And I started thinking a bit about what the breaks from reality in Utena mean in the context of that, because um, I'm going to get back to Nanami in a moment, but. Um, Utena is a show that will will kind of show you something really ridiculous that 
probably doesn't really quote-unquote count and put that in an episode that also has scenes that definitely have to have happened for the development of the characters. Yes. And the perfect example of that, I feel, is uh, the Nanami comedy episodes. Oh, for sure. And oh, should I, maybe, maybe I'll just get into the Nanami thing because it's, it's, it's relevant. Sure. So Nanami, I actually did the math on this, by the way, and you can, you can disagree with me, but you might be wrong. <laughs> I made a table and I tried to figure out how many focus episodes does each character have aside from Utena and Amphi. And in terms of episodes that are exclusively or almost exclusively about a single character, Nanami has six. Oh yeah, she has her own clip show episode. Yes. And of these six episodes, we have three very dramatic serious episodes and three comedy episodes. I think one of them is the clip show, a clip show of her own adventures. She's also the major secondary character in a bunch of other episodes. She is very central to what Utena is about. Mm-hmm. In Mitsuru's first episode, I think Lookout, Mrs. Nanami. Yes. There's a brilliant scene in which Mitsuru is confessing to, I think, Utena Ananthi that he was behind the attempts on Nanami's life to, to save her. And then the shot cuts to a different angle in which Nanami is sitting in front of a massive recording machine with a microphone pointed at where the conversation was happening. And she's like listening in with, a, with headphones, right? And, and this is further made ridiculous by the fact that this is outside at a running track. Yes. <laughs> and she's just there with this massive machine. And... Is the machine there? The machine disappears almost immediately. It doesn't really quite matter. The entire episode is kind of hilarious, except the episode introduces Mitsuru, who uh, will be important in other episodes. And the episode has a little exchange between Utena and Toga that is really important to the mind games that Toga is playing as part of the first story arc. Mm -hmm. But it also has a bit where a kangaroo gets loose and (laughs) Toga who is already wearing boxing attire, jumps over the side of a ring, of a boxing ring, that doesn't exist, that you never see. You just see him jump over it. (laughs) But that boxing ring never appears. And then he just boxes the kangaroo. But that scene had to have happened because at the end of that scene, he exchanges a very meaningful look with Utena where she starts, because she's, oh, maybe he's my prince and all that. So that scene is really important to the development of that arc. So you can't ignore the episode. You can't skip it because (laughs) it's crucial for the main character's story. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of my thing about it is that I feel like because Nanami is connected directly to every time that the story pushes at the boundaries of the reality of this world, because the comedy episodes are the most absurd things that happen in the show for the most part. And my thing is that I feel like when you put together... The fact that Nanami has all this focus, the fact that she kind of pokes at the edges of this world, the fact that in the movie, she basically doesn't exist in the same reality, and that in the musical, she's the only one that knows that, is, that she's in a musical. Yeah, she and Sionji are the only characters that oh, ever Sionji, break the fourth wall. Well, Sionji usually, it, I think that was more for the, the first musical, and it had to do with like the actor kind of ad-libbing things. But for the most part, it is very, very centrally like Nanami is the one who is always breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in that episode that is about Mickey, uh, where they're starting to, where everyone's studying together 
And a solid six or seven minutes of that episode are spent on Nanami clowning and talking to the camera about what she's trying to do. Miss Nanami is a weirdo who keeps snails <laughs> in her pencil box. That's what will happen. It's great, but also it makes perfect sense that she's trying to troll. She's she's trying to like harass Anthe with this, and Anthe is one of the engines on which this world runs. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to trick kind of God in the yeah. con- in context, you know. And kind of my thing is that when you combine all of this with Nanami's two parter near the end of the show, in which she sees and understands what's going on, but at the end of the day, can't really take that step of just breaking free and has to go back to the duels. Mm. The two characters that more clearly see what is going on and clearly see the world in which they are trapped in are Nanami, the comedy character, and Sayonji, who is also kind of a comedy character. Oh, definitely. And and who is like the biggest loser in the show. And, (laughs) you know, and I was just thinking about like the show is spending so long on, on some of these characters and, you know, why that is. And all of this is interpretation and metaphor and symbol and narrative. This isn't something you can catalog. No. That was, yeah, that, I, w- I went to the Nanami place. I did it. Congratulations, right. everybody. <laughs> all hail the queen. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. I, I, think it's, I think it's a really good point that, like, Nanami is a really good way to look at how Utsuna, Utsuna doesn't just play with the ideas of canonicity and... I'm trying to figure out a way to say plot that make plot coherency, consistency and plot. Yeah, like consistency. Like she's she, they they the show uses her to do a lot of weird like meta narrative bullshit. It partially it's a joke, you know. It, it's very much a joke, but it's very much them fucking with you just just because it's funny. But also, it's kind of making a point, which is Utana is all about how narratives are both simultaneously incredibly powerful and extremely fragile. And of course, in a show about how narratives are fragile, we have an overarching narrative, which is sometimes kind of incoherent and a little, and a little fragile. It's powerful, but it also parts of it just don't make sense. And you kind of just have to accept that what you are seeing. Yeah. And you have to, and you have to accept that this is, the story is concerned about with its aesthetics and its metaphors and symbols and the the emotions of the characters in that very traditional shoujo way rather than how does this fit in yeah. yeah like the only other part that i have about this is basically cuz i think it's very very interesting cuz this is not something that uh, i mean i i may be wrong i don't know i can't i don't think you have a lot of experience about the early fandom of utena if i'm correct uh, um, not so much. Like, because... But we, we've heard. Oh, yeah, no, obviously, like, you talk to a lot of people and you talk to Vanna and Yasha. Um, yeah. One of the things that was very characteristic in early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, online anime conversations in the English-speaking world was that Utena, you know, Utena had its fandom, obviously, and it was fairly new at the time, and a lot of people had seen it, and a lot of people had a lot to say about it. Uh, the fandom was obviously much smaller, and really the fandom was very kind of secluded to the side because a lot of anime fans were very dismissive of Utena. Yeah, I get, I get the impression that this was something that a lot of people watched at the time because you kind of just grabbed at whatever bits of 
anime were brought over and this happened to be one of them but there were there was a contingent of people that just sort of hand waved it away as being fluffy nonsense or not fluffy nonsense but like like ridiculous nonsense yeah i basically i remember very distinctly having having heated heated message board arguments with people that were big anime fans and prided themselves in their analytical skills and understanding narrative and stuff like that and they thought that Utena was a show that didn't have much to say, that it didn't develop its characters correctly because it would do stuff like spend an entire episode on a character and then not really develop that character again for 20 episodes. Ooh, that's bad, right? Because everything has to be consistent and, and, and there has to be like a like that kind of it's, it's expected that things are going to have that kind of arc, right? In a lot of shows, that would be kind of bad because those shows are built differently. Exactly. When you start to apply universal rules to narrative art, you've probably failed. At that point, you've gone off into your own kind of thing there. Because you're you're, going to get lost in the weeds. And that's exactly it. And I feel like kind of in those arguments that I was having, we were talking past each other because the things that I felt were really interesting and fascinating about Utena were just dismissed as unimportant or uninteresting or not something that matters on whether the show was good or not, you know? Yeah. Because that was the thing. That, and it's the thing that you see still in a lot of English-speaking anime fandom. Is it good? As in, is like, you know, this idea that we can objectively say from every piece of art if it is good or not, right? Yeah. And... And at the time, it was really weird. And now that I have like much more, many more years behind me and I'm closer to 40 than I am to 30, I kind of can see that I think a lot of it was the fact that uh, a lot of people did not have certain frames of reference. And uh, a friend of mine said something to me when I was telling them that I was going to do this episode th- this today. I was talking to a friend about it and they said that there's a lot of people for whom their frame of reference is specifically the kind of media that they're into. So a lot of gamers, their only frame of reference is video games. A lot of anime fans, their only frame of reference is anime. And how that means that people can have like really kind of, I don't want to say wrong, but wrong interpretation, (laughs) or at least perspectives that are very uninformed on a lot of these things. And the thing about Utena is that I feel, you know, I I, I have a certain amount of privileges as a white person that uh, grew up middle class, middle class, in a third world country, but middle class nonetheless, university educated with a university educated family, they have a, access to a lot of that, those kind of things. You know, my 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 parents brought me to, to theater and, and, and opera and stuff like that because that was something that we could do. So even though I've never really been much of a person for high art, I know a lot about it and I understand a lot about it because it was around me. And I do acknowledge that as a privilege. But the thing is, Utena is working in a frame of reference in terms of its aesthetics and its narrative and its tropes that is not something that an English-speaking fan of anime in the late 90s, early 2000s would have really been able to discern because the anime tropes that it's referencing are mainly from the 70s, 70s and and, and, and 80s, uh, from shoujo anime and manga that hadn't made its way over, Rosa Versailles, you know, to Terra, a lot of the shoujo from that era. Um, and it's also referencing very strongly the avant-garde movement in Japan from the 60s and 70s, which I still barely know anything about. But every time I encounter something from that era, from 
uh, from that kind that kind of avant-garde style that comes from from Japanese pop culture, I'm like, ah, I see where Utene got it. I see where this comes from. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's relying so much on frames of reference that would be known to a discerning Japanese audience that worked a bit for it. But it wouldn't be that hard for a Japanese person to figure this out, as hard as it would be maybe for uh, an English-speaking audience. So I kind of want to be a bit fair to my very incorrect opponents in message board wars of the past. But also, I guess, I don't know, I'm I, just to encourage people to not not just have a single frame of reference if you can avoid it kind of thing. And the last thing that I want to reference with this that kind of was the final cherry on the Sunday uh, that is my argument. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so pretentious. Oh, my God. Is that I, a couple of weeks ago, I watched Nobuhiko Obayashi's cult humor, horror comedy House, which is a 1977 film. Nobuhiko Obayashi became very well known for that film. But then his, the rest of his films are kind of more straight up historical dramas. But he became very, very famous. I think he died. Uh, he died a few years ago. This is a movie that I have not seen, but has been recommended to me uh, several times over the years. And I had hoped to get to watch it before this, but I never was able to get around to it. I do recommend it. I'm not gonna not gonna spoil anything about it. But the reason why I'm mentioning in this context is because it really gave me more context for Utena. Because mm-hmm. I know that House is a big cult film. Uh, especially in like Japanese, like more arty cinema. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's very well known, and even though Nobuhiko Bayashi made a, a very, very big career as a film director after it, it's kind of still the film that he's the best known for. It leads me to think that it's, there's a much higher than zero chance that a lot of the creators of Utena watch this, watch this film. I believe that. And I've seen... Uh, I watched that and I watched a bunch of Nobuhiko Bayashi's shorts because it was like an online film festival. But especially House, uh, most people tell to call it Hausu, which I dislike, but it does make it not sound like the show about the doctor. <laughs> it's uh, the, the film is basically a sort of very bizarre, kind of coming of age horror comedy about a girl that's very alienated. And so she and her classmates go to spend some time in her auntie's house, her elderly auntie's house in the countryside. And, you know, the house is haunted. So things happen. Uh, There's a lot of gore and a lot of weird imagery. But overall, it's just intensely strange and very funny. There's like some nudity as well, I should mention. But the movie is really absurdist from the beginning, even before they get to the titular house. It's completely ridiculous. The characters all have very silly names. Like one of them is called Sweet in English. They all have different names. There's some fatphobia in it, I should preface but the way that the film is edited and shot the specifics of its humor you know that kind of cruel surreal humor that Utena does sometimes that it's it's funny but it's really grim and also intensely strange and surreal yeah it's like ha, uh. it's this is exactly the cinematic language of house and watching that movie it made me understand that it, it understand it as cultural context for Utena. And I'm not saying that's the direct link, but I'm saying that it exists in a larger context where these kind of strange, kind of sexual, kind of humorous, but also tragic, surreal, weird stuff, you know, J.A. Caesar and all that, all of that exists in a cultural context that we largely don't have access to. And that's why I encourage people to watch Haosu because it's at least a sampling of that that you can access. 
uh, because it has been translated and it's, it's relatively widely released. Yeah, I know it, it does have its own cult following among English-speaking horror fans. Yeah, but because because horror fandoms don't always overlap with necessarily the specific Utena fandom, which is a subset of a subset, I have not, never really read people making connections like these in mm-hmm. English. I've never really... I had never really heard of the movie until a friend of mine who does not know anything about anime and she's uh, she's a film scholar in the University of Sterling. Shout out to Maria. She she mentioned it to me and she said that it was that it was very weird and interesting and and we watched it a few weeks ago and it was and it was terrific. It's terrific. It's really funny, but it's really funny in specific ways that I think will definitely tickle the imagination of Utena fans and I I can't recommend it enough for that. If you take one thing away from this episode, listeners, it's go watch House. Yeah, watch Nobuhiko Wayashi's yes. 1977 masterpiece. Yes. But yeah, that is kind of that is kind of my thing. Relax. Story. Just try to see what a story is trying to do. Try, try to see what a creator is trying to do. Don't if it doesn't fit in a wiki, you know, it doesn't fit in a wiki. It's fine. It's, it's okay. okay for things to seem a little obtuse. If you don't know the answer to a question of why is something this way immediately you aren't going to die it's really <laughs> okay i promise i say this is personal because i used to write a lot of fan fiction and if you don't explain every if you do not have an info dump about every single word that you use there is some nerd who's going to come into your comments who talk about how nothing makes sense and to that person to all those people for over 10 years, I will say to you, it's okay. It really is. You're not going to die. The reminder that 2010 is 10 years ago is... Oh, God. It hurts a little bit. It 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 also means that, Alice, you and I have probably known each other for almost 10 years now. Because I feel like we met in, like, 2011, 2012. We have known each other for about a decade, yes. Oh, Wow. Well, last year, it was 20 years since I first watched Utena. Oh, it was your 20-year Utenaversary. Yeah, I hadn't, I wasn't able to access the entire thing. I could only watch the Student Council saga in the movie, but that was that, you know, 1999. It was, it was, a, it was definitely a year <laughs> that happened. Um, yeah, you, um, speaking of you watching Utena, you have a, a note here uh, in contrast with the way that the English-speaking world reacted to Utena. Uh, your experience in Argentina was that people loved how weird and gay it was. Yeah, and I, and I want to also clarify, you know, um, I was by no means, I was just a teenager. I didn't necessarily, a, a teenager in a relatively, in a very, very early internet time. So mm-hmm. to this day, I've tried to research Argentinian anime fandom and there's very, very little. Um, it's very, very hard. I imagine most of it's related to Saint Seiya. It, it, you know, a few years ago, I started researching for an article about Argentinian fandom and it ended up being 70% about Saint Seiya. Yes, I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> I will say that the fandom was very big and also very loosely defined because there were so many people that were enjoying anime and wouldn't have called themselves anime fans. But also, mm-hmm. I was hanging out with people that were basically an offshoot from a really big Sailor Moon fan club. And so... It was sense. people that was were specifically primed for Utena because we knew it was from the guy that directed the first three seasons of Sailor Moon. You know, we were kind of very primed for it. And yeah, a lot of us were gay or would come out as gay or trans as the years went by. And yeah, you know, it was definitely 
very different the way that me and my friends and the 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 anime environment that I existed in, like, you know, at most, if someone didn't like it, they weren't talking to me about character development or, or plotting or consistency. They were like, oh, I don't think it's for me. You know, they weren't <laughs> saying it's objectively bad. They were just saying... More people really need do it for me. that kind of approach to media that they don't like. Sometimes a thing just is not for you. That is something that I have realized over the past few years is sometimes you can look at something and it doesn't, you don't have to like justify why you think it is bad. It can just like not be your thing. And and that's okay. You know, I am, I'm never going to be a Dungeons and Dragons person. You know, it's, it's not my thing. It's not my thing. I like some tabletop role playing games, Dungeons and Dragons. Not my thing. I've tried. You know, mm-hmm. that's okay. Other people can yeah. enjoy it. I don't, I don't care. I don't care if Dungeons and Dragons is the best tabletop RPG or not. I don't get, that doesn't matter to me. What matters is that people that I play stuff that I enjoy, other people play stuff that I enjoy. That's okay. Life is too short to just to not do things you enjoy or to spe- try to spend your time doing things that you don't enjoy. I mean, there is a value to enjoying hating something, you know? Sure. That's how I watched, that's how I watched the last two seasons of Game of Thrones. But especially last season. I watched Riverdale. Yeah, I, I, you know, I really enjoyed. After each episode, I would like crack a lot of jokes and rant about it to my friends and crack all these jokes and yell about it. And then a friend of mine was like, "Why are you even watching it?" And I was like, "No, you don't understand. It's really, it's, it's a lot of fun to bitch about it. I really enjoy <laughs> bitching about it. I really, really, really do. I don't even care. And, um, and yeah, you know, and that's, and that's all right. Now, I will say, however, even though I'm sounding like really just like, oh, relax and enjoy things." You know, I had a moment last Christmas. Um, I went to the, the Christmas party of a friend of mine and it was on the week that Rise of Skywalker had come out and I had been to the midnight screening. Oh boy. And I forgot that there are people who just let movies kind of wash over them, which is which is yeah. fine. You know, I'm someone that writes writes essays about video games for money and that wants to do video essays for money. And so I have specific approaches to this. But... Mm-hmm. So I'm not a general audience and, but we're all sitting, like, we're all just like hanging out in this big Christmas party in the pre-COVID times. And um, my friend's mom, like my friend's is a big nerd and so is so are people in her family. And her mom was just saying how, how she went to see Rise of Skywalker and she really loved it because she thought it was a great, it was, it was a fun Star Wars movie. It's exactly what you expect from Star Wars. And, you know, I don't think she was right. I still think that she was wrong and one day she will pay for her crimes. However, I can kind of understand that perspective a bit more now. I didn't, I made a couple of comments because a few of my friends that were there had seen me rant on Twitter um, <laughs> because that movie, that it made, it did make me mad because I felt it was a badly made movie that was intentionally, intentionally destroying previous plot points. I'm literally not allowed to talk about them anymore. Okay. Okay. I, I don't want to go on a tangent, but what I will say is it is, it will never not be funny to me that, Disney fucking spent all of this money to get a hold of Star Wars and they just fucking just fucked it up right at the end. You know, credit credit where credit's due. They've done a lot of really fun stuff that I really enjoyed. That was just and that was the thing. Like for me, the moment that like I, I made myself go to see it again because I was like, it's the last one of the main series or whatever. I want to watch it in the cinema one last time. When am I gonna get the chance again? And uh, and knowing all the bullshit that the movie was going to throw at me, I switched off my brain. I was just like, just enjoy the pretty pictures. Just enjoy the pew pews. 
uh, try to ignore how resigned Oscar Isaac looks when he says, somehow Palpatine returned, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and kind of ignore that. But, and then just like what I did is I immediately just like jumped on the Mandalorian, watched the Mandalorian, loved it, and kind of realized that, you know what? This entire thing doesn't have to make sense. I can just enjoy the Mandalorian. I can just watch Star Wars Rebels again, which I really liked. I can read some of the comics. Some of them are really good, you know? Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. It's okay. You know, it doesn't matter what counts or not that much to me anymore. Wish they had stuck the landing. They didn't. Oh, well, there's other stuff. You know, there's always going to be more Star Wars. Nobody's ever going to have a shortage of Star Wars. It's true. There will be a shortage of, of drinkable water in the coming apocalypse, and it will still be easier to get Star Wars DVDs. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know I'm right. But anyway, I've, I've kind of gone off. The three constants of the universe are death, taxes, and Star Wars. I mean, I'm very excited for them to do, you know, those Disney live action remakes that they keep doing that I haven't seen any of them because why? I am very excited for them to do one in Dutch style of like the Phantom Menace. I, I can't wait. You know it's going to happen. The idea of a Phantom Menace remake is so funny, but yes, you're right. You know, people complain about the Phantom Menace, and it is a terrible movie, made a gajillion dollars. Yeah. You know? It sure did. Sure did. And all the Star Wars movies, it's just like printing money. Yeah, all of them do. So there is total incentive for Disney, who probably owns Star Wars in perpetuity, to now, like, you know, in maybe in 10 years' time, go like, you know what? We're going to revisit the prequels, because why not? It's 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 money. It's money on the table, you know. Yeah, I believe that. It's to 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 quote one of my favorite skits I saw online recently. It's free real estate. It's free real estate. But yeah, just uh, yeah, I think I think this is kind of like most of what I had. Um, but I also want to kind of like listen to like if 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 you had like anything anything more that you wanted to like to like add on this. Yeah, I know, Alice. You, I feel like you've had a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm. I kind of feel like. It's part of a larger problem wherein the way that we engage with stories and we being sort of the being vague here, which I know it is, but the way that a lot of modern audiences engage with stories is unideal. Especially in English speaking fandoms. Especially in English speaking fandoms, because they have a hard time engaging with a story on its own merits and really just kind of like absorbing it as a story. And it becomes a, either they can only experience it as a kind of totalizing thing where they have to sort of like obsess over every single detail of it, or it becomes sort of more about an identity marker than a story that you have, you experience and real an art that you really engage with. And both of those have some serious problems. And I don't know. Like, I, I'm not sure what the real fix to that is because we are always going to identify with things that we really feel passionate about, and we're probably always going to get lost in the weeds eventually on just anything. It's just how we are as humans. You know, we, we sure. hyperfixate. And it concerns me because that hyperfixation can be bad for the health of the art that we love. We can actually hurt the movement, art, artistic movements and scenes that we love by the way that we engage with them sometimes. I mean, I, I think a, I think a really good example from a, from another fandom I was part of that I have a complicated relationship with is um, a lot of the stuff that happened around the, um, the shipping wars early on in the life of Steven Universe and how this actually, it sounds silly, but it ended up with 
people that worked on the show being harassed with yeah. one particular person being harassed because that person that person had implied certain things in an episode that they wrote uh and and, and that they were the the, the scream the, the uh, what do you say the storyboard artist for and it basically because like the the two big ships early in the show were like Peridot and Lapis and Peridot and Amethyst and there was an episode after a while of Peridot and Lapis not showing up that kind of implied kind of made it seem like they might have been in a relationship or something and Mm -hmm. it was known that that was the ship that the storyboard artist supported but you know textually there's not like a lot there it's all very implied but this artist basically got harassed off the internet and this was someone that was working really hard on the show yeah uh Zook it was uh Jesse Zook yeah yeah um and there were other things about the job that were very stressful for them, but I feel like, you know, the fandom of this children's cartoon network show harassing one of the artists who was being open on Twitter so that fans could interact with them, you know. And on Tumblr. Yeah, and was doing an a, an, an in-universe Twitter account as Peridot and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and all that fun stuff and all that got ruined because people were mad about, spe- about one specific ship over the other. And... And I think I think Alice, this got, comes a lot to like the uh, stuff about hurting the stories that we love or hurting our understanding of them. You know, like I feel like there's so much there's so much kind of built in aggression to a lot of fandom. And frankly, a lot of people have have said for a long time the Steven Universe fandom is particularly bad. Honestly, most fandoms are like that. I think Utina is an outlier, if I'm honest. Oh yeah, um, I'm in the Transformers fandom, and I exist in a corner of the Transformers fandom that actually resembles the Utena fandom a lot because it's full of um, queers and uh, women that are both straight and queer, and a lot of people that are like sound. Um, but the Transformers fandom at large is full of this kind of stuff as well, you know. If so, I had to speculate as to why the Steven Universe fandom seems to have been like a like people think of it as being some sort of outlier of toxicity in like the intensity of the toxicity. I think it's because it was the one of the first times that a fandom for a show like this had not been resigned to like their own niche message boards and it was happening like on public social media as like as the the amount of websites that people frequent is boiled down and boiled down to where like the steven universe fandom largely existed on tumblr and twitter which is something that people use outside of being a steven universe fan so it was sort of the first time people saw some of the intensity of fan interactions happening in real time also i don't right, have any uh also tumblr like gives you brain worms which definitely <laughs> yes well twitter also gives you brain worms yeah i mean in fairness like the, the, the twitter brain worms of 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 this day and age are the tumblr brain worms of like four years ago right everyone yes, absolutely saying but yeah and um as universe fandom was also like really big on reddit as well yeah and like but yeah, it was a case that you know, and and I admit, I'm 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 a person that that got I got too close to that show, and I kind of got burned by it because ultimately it was a show that was not for me; it was for an audience of children mainly, and and that did make me sad, and I'm still kind of like bummed out about it because I did actually connect my identity a lot with Steven Universe for a while, which is a funny thing to say because Steven Universe was a fandom I got into when I was already like in my mid thirties, 
Well, and you also wrote a dissertation on Steven Universe or something? I wrote a dissertation on the translation of songs in Steven Universe, yes. Okay, yeah. So I was very, I was very much obsessed. Incidentally, if any of you listening is looking for the cheat code or how, how to get motivated to write a dissertation, make it be about something you're obsessed with and, <laughs> and something that you've not been tired of getting obsessed with for a long while because that dissertation didn't make me love Steven Universe any less. It made me love it more. Like other stuff made me love it less. But I guess what I was getting to is that I feel the current availability of creators online combined with the toxicity of online spaces and the, the, the sheer inherent bad faith aggression of online spaces kind of generates a lot of these situations where people get really legitimately angry at a person for writing a character they love in a way they don't approve of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's kind of... Yeah, again, going back to what Alice was saying, that that this is damaging to the stories, it's damaging to the creators. One of the things that is a very classic Utenet example, I feel, is the case of Akio, I think. And I think I spoke about this last time I was, I was on here. So one thing a friend of mine said recently was that there, a lot of the time when a character is shown to do something really, really fucked up in a show, right? Um, there's two ways in which fandoms tend to interpret it in the English-speaking world. One, if it's a male character that does something that could be construed as cool and the audience is mainly, say what dudes, that character will be considered a cool badass, like, you know, um, uh, Walter White, right? The perfect example. Yes. Uh, but if it's a fandom that comes from background, from a different background, like a lot of fandoms that are more driven by like SBT people, people from a sort of more kind of left-leaning background or more critical background, uh, maybe more feminist. There's a lot of people that consider a character having a big character flaw and doing something really, really fucked up. They consider that as being inappropriate because they act because the character is acting immorally, and that's considered inappropriate because it's considered that that is encouraging that. You know, so again, a Steven Universe example: Pearl was really crappy to Greg. Right, especially when in in the flashbacks when Rose Quartz was still alive, and the discourse going on on Tumblr at the time was that Pearl was an abuser and a bad person with capital capital letters, bad person, and that she was bad representation for a que- for queer women, and this, that, and the other. When in fact, those of us who had experience of queer communities outside of Tumblr and who had experience of a lot of life experience outside of TV shows on Tumblr, we know that people are complicated and you you know some of us do fucked up stuff you know queer people are humans what a surprise exactly and i felt when when i was seeing all that stuff with pearl i loved her because i felt like she was a continuation of characters like jury you know characters that are queer mm-hmm. but are also deeply deeply flawed and in in ways that do kind of interweave with dealing with living in the world as as a queer person uh, and queer women in particular, and I felt mm-hmm. I always felt Pearl was really real as a character, which is a weird thing to say for a show like that. And <laughs> yeah. it it was so jarring when I saw that people were angry that this character that they loved was being was acting in ways they considered immoral or inappropriate. And what my friend said, what what my friend said to me when I was talking to him about about these two these two different ways in which people take characters, he was saying most people don't seem to think about a character in terms beyond he's my friend. Yes. <laughs> they do not have a separation. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. And I think, and that's why I bring it to Accio because Accio for me is the er example of this. I remember very distinctly in the early 2000s, I had a girlfriend that we watched internet together and she liked it, you know, and she, she hated Accio. She hated Accio. She thought Accio was a despicable monster, which he is. And we kept talking past each other because I kept saying that I thought he was an amazing character because he is. He's an amazing villain. He's disgusting. I would punch him if I saw him in real life. You know, <laughs> like he's horrifying, twisted and an incredible villain and so apt. And when I was explaining that, my girlfriend at the time basically said, I don't understand how you can like a character that is so horrible. And, and I was saying, I don't like that he's a horrible character. I like that he's a well-delineated, well-created character that is an interesting villain, you know, and you love to hate him, you know. Yeah. But she couldn't quite quite grasp that, you know. And, and also remembering, obviously, in the early 2000s, as uh, I think... Vanna and Yasha have mentioned a lot this thing about in the early days of the fandom, the Akio fans that were about who thought that Akio was a suave and cool badass. Yes, yes. I have heard yeah. hell of uh, these this brand of Akio fan that thankfully has not really persisted in the fandom as far as I can tell. Not really. And but it's really interesting because when I was getting into Utena, you know, I'm, I'm currently undergoing uh, a, a big, like, uh, you know, uh, reread of a lot of Clamp manga because that's another shoujo that I attend, mm-hmm. <laughs> Clamp. And I'm especially a big fan of early Clamp. And Clamp is full of characters like Akio. Clamp is full of, like, tall, handsome guys that are disturbing, like, violent abusers. We could watch any glam anime that had something really super fucked up that definitely needed did not need to be in there in it. We would never watch any of them because there's <laughs> literally all of them. I mean, we wouldn't watch Utena. Utena has a lot of stuff that is really... Whenever I, I'm introducing Utena to people, I do give them some content warnings because I say, look, this show is going to... Hmm? Sorry? I mean, that's a good idea. Yeah, like I'm, I'm going to say, like, look, this is where this show goes. It might not seem it's going to go to these places, but it goes there in very real ways. But it's not, you know, when it talks about incest, it's not saying incest is good. You know, when it talks about power dynamics and sexism and misogyny and abuse and, um, and all of this, it's not in any way, it's showing them as really deeply emotionally, just horrifying, twisted, destructive things, you know? Yes. And, and that's it. And I, and I think... Yeah, growing up in the, with the specific fandom environment that I had where we were all reading Clamp and watching Sailor Moon and watching Utena. And we were like, yeah, I mean, we did think Toga was really cool because <laughs> we were teenagers and we did think Aki was quote unquote cool, but we also knew that he was despicable. And we, I don't think we were trying to defend him too much. I think we defended him a bit more because again, we were teenagers. But yeah, like a lot of people in... You know, and I say this as someone who is very lefty, feminist, and queer, and I've done my years of activism in all of these fields. A character doesn't have to be morally righteous to be interesting or human or well-written or good or even interesting and appropriate representation, you know? Yeah, that's how I feel about Pink Diamond, but I'm not allowed to say that because Pink Diamond's a war criminal. Well... I mean, look, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying... Okay, not, I'm not going to get into that discourse, but I totally get you. Yeah. Because I feel the same way. I think they did a lot of uh, a good job with Pink Diamond. Yeah. However, it's a bit fucked up that by the end of the show, the only diamond that has ever been punished for their crimes is the only one that actually rebelled. 
you're not wrong. That's it. That's that's it. That's it. That's that's. <laughs> I have to say my piece because Steven Universe heard me very strongly, and I had to no, say that. No, I get it. I really get it. <laughs> Listen, Steven Universe is Utina content. Come on, like the show it is. very very Absolutely lovingly is. does a lot of tributes to Utina, big and small. So even in the final season, even the final yeah, season, yeah, there there's like a whole character in Steven Universe feature that is literally just. Utna and Anthe smushed together. Yep, there is. Like design wise. Uh, yeah, and they, and they they also I think when the episode aired they also like said it like whoever was in charge of the design was like oh yeah this is this is a direct reference to Utna. Oh, Anthe. I don't think I saw that, but I would not be surprised. And and of course like we have the much more recent reference to Utna uh, in in Shira, of course. Oh, of course. In in that show, which is very good, and I like it a lot. Yes, but. Yeah, I just feel like it's like you're saying, Alice. I think it's very troubling the way that a lot of the direction that a lot of fandom has taken in the wake in the post Tumblr world. I think that Tumblr was the playground where a lot of people were trying to figure out their politics and who they were, and that's valuable. And at the time, I did see it as something very valuable because I because younger people could get in touch with politics that are seen as more radical and with yeah. ideas about feminism and queerness and cultural appropriation and all these things that it took me so long to come to, and that was really good. But then it started getting into like really hardcore policing of boundaries and delineating a lot of these things. And then the, the logical endpoint of that is character morality, right? Like mm-hmm. saying, oh, a character is immoral. If you like that character, you are basically as bad as they are. That is definitely a trend that I've seen in discourse uh, in the past, like probably 10 years that I uh, don't love. Alice, if you uh, check the Discord chat, I have put a picture of the character that I was uh, referring to, known canonically as Mega Pearl. Yeah, it's literally just Utena character. It's just Utena and Anthe, like smushed together. Yeah, I mean, they, I think, I think at the end of the day, the hair and the crown are the the final, mm-hmm. the final touches in there. But also the shorts, Definitely. you know, the and shorts, everything else. <laughs> the shorts and the the cauldrons on the shoulders yeah or whatever those things are called but yeah we've we've completely digressed i'm aware yes but i think it's because like i feel that the canonicity conversation does go into the really interesting part about general approaches to stories and yeah again like 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 alice like you were saying like the the kind of damaging to oneself and to the stories and to the creators the the ways in which we can yeah kind of Mm -hmm. see them yeah well, I feel like unless we uh, unless we have anything else to say, I feel like this is a pretty good place to wrap up. Yeah, I think so. I think like I mean, I, I covered all of the. I made a much better job of <laughs> writing a list of points that I wanted to hit. <laughs> getting getting your takes, and it was it was. I want to say um, specifically, it was really interesting, um, Alice, to hear about 40k because I have a lot of friends that are into 40k, and it's it's not something I know a lot about. You know, I literally just played Dawn of War a lot when it was out, the, the video game. And I had the Horus Heresy book that a friend of mine gave me because he used to work at Games Workshop. Nice. And yeah. And, and that's it, you know, um, that's kind of, I have very little context, but I always find it very interesting because it's, it's, such, a, it's such a fucked up world, right? And it's also kind of funny imagining that kind of Tumblr approach applied to a character from 40K. <laughs> This character wasn't moral. God, that's so cursed. <laughs> hey, Alice, Alice, that co- this commissar is problematic. God, I'm about to say we have, we have to cancel Caiaphas Kane. 
for being uh, problematic at multiple levels. I am canceling the Blood Angels for being uh, agents of Imperial power. I'm also going to cancel the, the Tau for for cultural appropriation. And the Necron, I'm, can- I'm definitely canceling them for being genocidal zombie Terminators. Oh, Christ, you can only, like, anybody who likes the Tau is automatically suspicious. Okay. Definitely a mark of being an appropriate weave. I mean, it's true, <laughs> but also. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. All right, well, this has been absolutely delightful. And Thank if- you. Listeners, if you'd like to follow us, this show, on Twitter, you can do that at Utsumacast. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at Mcantonata. Alice, where can people find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at uh, Lyrewolf, which is L-Y-R-E-W-U-O-F. Alice has a secret project that we're not going to tell you about. You just get to wonder what it could be. It is true. <laughs> Ari, where can people find you online? So uh, ever since ever since the last time that um, that I was on, um, I've kind of uh, diversified my online presence slightly, but it's not too complicated. I have two Twitter accounts. One, if you fancy me telling jokes and talking about stand-up comedy, which I do a bunch, that one is the one as before, which is at AB underscore Silvera. And if you want to hear me talk about nerdy stuff, anime, you know, a lot of Transformers, Tokusatsu, just nerdy, nerdy stuff, Utena as well, a lot, uh, you can find me at uh, Fuchsia Punk. That one is spelled F-U-C-H-S, the number one, A, and uh, P-U-N-K. So like the word fuchsia and the word punk, but the I in fuchsia is a one. And that is also my username on Twitch, where I'm currently streaming a couple times a week, uh, Final Fantasy VII. And um, yeah, those are the main parts. I hope I, can, I, hope I make th- things that you'd be interested in. Oh, and if you're interested in re- reading me, my, my writing, about very old video games. The past year, I've spent uh, a long time working on a series about the Wing Commander franchise, which is a sadly basically defunct uh, series of Space Simulator games that were huge in the 90s and which are, were a big part of my, my teenage years. And I am working on that series for Hardcore Gaming 101. And I am chronicling the, the entire development history of it from the very beginning. I have also kind of stalled for the better part of a year because of COVID and a lot of personal life issues because the next article I'm writing is about the most famous game in the series, Wing Commander 3, which stars Mark Hamill in live-action wow. CD-ROM FMV format. Yeah, yes. Wing Commander 3 is so good! It's it's <laughs> quite good. It stars uh, Mark Hamill, Malcolm McDowell, and John Rhys-Davies, and um, the guy who's... I always forget his name. Uh, Tom Wilson, Biff from Back from Back to the Future. They're all in there uh, because the game is was it was kind of like the the standard bearer of FMV games because mm-hmm. it was both a really good space sim game and also like a really engaging interactive sweeping story with actually decent actors. Obviously, it, lo- it looks very quaint and lo-fi now, but uh, but that article has kind of been the, the bane of my life last year because the game is so important to to the history of video games to the, to a lot of different issues around how we understand games today that I've, yeah, it's, I've really got lost in the weeds on that one, uh, to borrow a phrasing. But uh, so far, there's like a bunch of articles that describe the, the inception of this franchise, kind of why, why it's important to, to talk about it. I look at the, I've looked at the first two games and a bunch of the side games. It's been an incredibly rewarding experience, not only because it's the first time I've been paid to write about video games and it's something I'm very proud of and the articles are very long and deeply researched, but also because I've had the chance to talk to people that were involved in making the games 
you know, like I was able to, um, this, this doesn't show up in the articles that much, but I was able to talk to the director of Wing Commander 2, who is uh, Siobhan uh, Beeman, who is uh, a trans woman. And it was really, really great to connect with her. And she only gave me like a couple of minor corrections in my Wing Commander 2 piece, but <laughs> it was crazy. It, uh, and incidentally, I also wanted to mention, sorry that I've gone over Wing Commander, but this is this is kind of been my passion project slash work project for the past year. Um, yesterday marked the 29th anniversary of Wing Commander 2, which was my first Wing Commander game, which was the one directed by Shibon Beeman. And, you know, it's not the best game in the franchise. It's not the best game ever in many ways, but it's also incredibly good and incredibly engaging and got me into that universe and got me to think about video games in a really different way. It was the first game I really played that had a story to it with character development and twists and turns and heartbreak. And the fact that I was able to have like, even in Twitter DMs, a conversation with the director of that game and get a bit of an inside scoop while also writing pieces that I'm being, you know, that I'm being hired to do for a, a really fantastic website that is, is, is amazing in terms of archival content, Hardcore Gaming 101. It's, it's something I'm deeply proud of. And I know it's very, very far from the Utenan anime wheelhouse, but, um, you know, I hope that listeners will will look into that and that's at hardcore gaming 101 if you look for hardcore gaming, hardcore gaming 101 wing commander you'll find them thank that you that's awesome. my big plug <laughs> i that is absolutely incredible and i i have no doubt that there are people in our listener base that also like wing commander because this is also a game that i have heard of before although i don't know as much about but uh listeners also if you'd like to support the show you could do that at our Patreon. You can find the link to that anywhere that we are on the internet. And that is one way that you can get the uh, Nanami Cow Nanamu uh, acrylic keychains that we recently came out with. And I love them. And you should, too, because they're very cute. They're and if you'd like to email us about the show, you could do that at imagineandyushna at gmail.com. And... That's all I'm going to plug. I'm sure I have a couple of things that I missed, but I don't care. Uh, Revolutionize the world, everybody. See you later. Sure.